Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am excited because my friend, Dr. Mark Musk, is in studio, and I'm looking forward to this hour. So please send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Ask the professor. He's been a professor here at the University of Northwestern for 36 years, right around there. That's my best guess. 36, 37. Round it off after you get past 20. Yeah, whatever. So, Mark, before we jump in, do you have any observations about uh, what happened today with the sentencing of Derek Chauvin? Is there any thoughts you have about, as Christ followers, we should be looking at this? I, I don't know. It's uh, first reactions. I've got mixed feelings mm-hmm. about all this. Um, there's so much going around and being said, and uh, I'm just uh, I'm trying to come to grips with it myself. Okay. But I think that is the question, is what uh, would Christ have us think what would you have us say? What would you have us do? Mm-hmm. And especially in the church, I don't know if the world this is possible, but in the church, what's what can we say, do, and think that will unify the church and not splinter it? And uh, where do we start with that? I'm always a big one when there's controversy and different views. Start with what you can agree about, first of all. And uh, that would be very helpful, I think, if we could have some conversations like that with mm-hmm. one another as brothers and sisters, and then move to some of the things that we may not be able to come to agreement on. Usually we don't talk about the things we agree on because we get the conversation over with in about two, three minutes. <laughs> but right. the stuff we disagree on, it's hours, days, weeks, months mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we wrangle with each other. So that may be a, a somewhat of a pathway, I guess. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Should we get to the questions? Absolutely. I love the first one. Okay. CW said, what does it mean to be born again? Oh, that's a great I term. love this question, yeah. CW. Thank you. Yeah, that's a biblical term, and uh, it was a popular much more back in the 20th century. Uh, when Jimmy Carter ran for president back in the 1970s, he was the born-again candidate. Mm-hmm. And so Time magazine had that across the cover of their magazine, born again. It was really big. It's kind of died out now. I think it's become kind of a butt of jokes at times, of people talking about born-again Christians, and they're a little wacky. Mm-hmm. But uh, the term born again, it's used, Jesus uses it in John chapter 3 when he talks with a very educated Jewish Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And uh, this term, uh, I'm just going to read the passage here. Nicodemus, it says in John 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. Notice the first two words out of his mouth, we know. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus pounces on that. He says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You think you know so much, you don't know anything until you've been born again. 
And so Nicodemus stumbles over that and says, uh, what, uh, I don't understand that. Am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born again? It's hard to know from the text of Scripture whether he's being sarcastic right. there or whether he's really trying to understand. And so uh, Jesus comes back to it, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That is what born of the Spirit is spirit. So it appears as though this born again is a spiritual birth. And theologians, and this term also is used in the Bible, but theologians will call this regeneration. And if you just take apart the word, to generate something means that it's something being created, something's being produced. And to recreate means that you are being created again. And uh, Paul uses this kind of language over in 2 Corinthians 5, a very famous memory verse, verse 17, where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so I'd say to your uh, friend who asked this, to be born again means to undergo a completely new birth spiritually, where I like this, Bill, because Jesus doesn't talk about following him where you're on some kind of self-help program or personal improvement program. So you'll be a little more patient with people and you won't cuss at people when you're driving (laughs) and, you know, this kind of stuff. It's Mm -hmm. just kind of a morality thing where Mm -hmm. you just try to be a little better guy. Uh, Jesus said, no, uh, this thing is all new. When you are a new creature in Christ, everything gets turned upside down, and you are a new creation of the Holy Spirit, and a whole new life begins for you. Uh, This isn't too hard for people to understand who are like me, and I think you're this way too, where you, you lived a significant B.C. life, that before Christ, you know, I did a lot of things I'm not real uh, proud of. But then when I put my faith in the gospel and became a follower of Christ, holy buckets, I was born again. A whole new life began, and that's been going on for 40 years now. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these church rats who've been going to church ever since nine months before they've been born, (laughs) you know, they got the perfect cradle Mm -hmm. roll attendance, they've got the Iwana Awards, everything. (laughs) It's hard for them to understand this because they've said yes to Jesus in their entire life. When they were four years old, they knelt down next to their bed with their mom and asked Jesus into their heart. When they were at camp, when they were nine, they threw the twig in the fire the last night to show they saying yes to Jesus. And so they haven't seen this huge transformation because they've never really wandered that far away from the things of God and the things of Christ. So uh, I like to say to them, uh, just put yourself in the shoes of somebody like me, though, that think if you didn't have those Christian parents and that church to support you growing up all that way and where you'd be today without that. And that's what it means to be born again, to be mm-hmm. a complete revolution taking place in your life. <laughs> I was dating a girl at that time, Bill, for over two years. And about two two weeks later, after I put my faith in the gospel, she's looking at me like, who are you and what have you done with my boyfriend? <laughs> it was just completely different. And I wasn't trying to be anything different. I was just trying to understand what was going on. And it was kind of fun, too, because she meant it as a compliment. She said, you're treating me better. You know, I'm, I'm, I like this, but what's going on? So 
you, you, that's this idea of being completely changed. A whole spiritual revolution takes place in your heart, in your mind, in your body. Mm-hmm. You're a different person. Mm-hmm. And in John 3, 7, Jesus says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Yeah. If I understand Jesus, he's saying, don't take anything less, Nicodemus. I mm-hmm. mean it. This is what has to happen mm-hmm. to be born again. Listener wants to know if Nicodemus was born again. Well, you know, he's a fun story. Because story. he comes here and it looks like he's seeking. So at least he's interested in Jesus. He does say that he knows Jesus had to come from God. He couldn't do the things he's doing if he wasn't from God. And so there's at least that seeker attitude there. So is he at this point born again? I think he's still thinking and Mm -hmm. trying to understand. The lights are going on, but it's still as dim as the studio usually is. And so the the (laughs) lights have to be turned up a little bit. That was a cheap shot. It was. That was was a cheap shot. I've been waiting for that. I know. But uh, a lot of people, I think he's going to be in heaven. I think we're going to see him there, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because uh, when Jesus' body is taken down from the cross in John, uh, that uh, he is... uh, taken down there uh, by, I can't remember his name right off, uh, but uh, who gives him his tomb as Joseph well. Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah, Joseph of Arimathea. And John, the apostle, writing this, says Nicodemus was helping him. Mm-hmm. And so That's cool. I kind of smile with that and say, yeah, I think he went out on a limb. Everybody would have seen who he was. And for him to be helping with Jesus' body, they would have been going, whoa, what's going on with the teacher here? Yeah. So I think he came to that point. Yeah. Right before Easter, uh, Mark, I had uh, Dallas Jenkins on. We were talking about the start of season two of The Chosen. Yeah. And as um, you have encouraged me to watch that, and I've loved it, and I'm kind of hooked on it now. Oh, you get hooked real bad. Oh, you're hooked on yeah. so fast. Mm-hmm. But it's so f- wonderful to see the disciples being together. Now, we haven't gotten to the point where we've met Judas yet. Mm-hmm. But when you see the, the love and the camaraderie and everything else that goes on, is it possible that Judas was born again? I, you know, we don't have anything definitive about that right. in the Bible, Bill, but I lean against it. Now, okay. that goes against my grain. I hope everybody's going to be there in heaven someday, even the people that surprise us. Mm-hmm. I hope some of the worst tyrants and scoundrels in human history, at their deathbed, they cast themselves upon Jesus, put their faith in the gospel, yeah. and got saved by the skin of their teeth. But with Judas, we also have to go with the biblical record, and there's not a word of hope given for okay. Judas okay. by Jesus or by anybody else. Remember, Jesus calls him the son of perdition. Right. That doesn't sound like somebody that's born again. No, it really doesn't. But yet, it's not definitive. It's not absolutely conclusive. So I'm going to hang on to my okay. uh, foolish optimism. Okay, and I like hope. that. But, well, it makes you a better person. We've talked about this many times before. Mm-hmm. People who think this person's in hell and this person's burning in the fire and this and that, it does something bad to you. I agree. To think that way. It sours you. It hardens you. And so I like being more optimistic, even though it might be foolish mm-hmm. at times. Yeah. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. Let me know what your questions are. You can text them over. You know that number, 877-933-2484. WC sent me an email asking about Born Again. You can do that just like the way he did, bill at myfaithradio.com. A couple of ways to reach uh, the show today. Let me know what your questions are, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back.
Dr. Mark Muska is my guest for the whole hour. I love that. So let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Mark, let's see. A listener wants to know about when the Bible says in um, Genesis 13, 16, Abram's seed will be as the dust of the earth. I don't remember reading that before. Is that more powerful than the sand of the sea? And wouldn't we infer from that that the nation of Israel would have the highest population in the earth? It's such a tiny nation. Or would this include all the saved Gentiles who have been grafted in? Yeah, that's a whole bunch of questions there. Yeah, it is. And she left out one, too, because in Genesis 15, 5, it says that God took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants or your seed be. So... Take your pick there. Dust, sand, stars. There's a whole mess of them. All right. You ever tried to count the stars when you were a kid? And yep. somebody talks to you and you look away and you go, oh, dang, <laughs> I got I to gotta start over again. Well, you're not going to do it. It's, it's not going to happen. But uh, uh, this is a really good question because it treats the Bible as a piece of literature. It's a lot of things, including the Bible is a piece of literature. And so it uses literary devices all over the place. And one of those literary, uh, literary devices is uh, figures of speech. There's all kinds of them in the Bible. When Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep, he isn't made out of wood and have mm-hmm. hinges. He's using a figure of speech there to describe his relationship to his followers. And in this case, the I think the easiest path through this is that what uh, God is doing here is he's using hyperbole. Uh, you literature majors in college are all smiling right now because you know that hyperbole, it's the idea that you exaggerate something to make a point. So I talked to you earlier in, via email today about this, you know, that if your father says to you, I've told you a million times to clean up your room and keep your room clean. Mm-hmm. Now, pity the poor kid that answers back to his dad and says, oh, you haven't done that, dad. It's only been 418 times, <laughs> you know. That kid might not remember anything after that, right? You know, the dad, he, the point he's making is, I've told you more times than I want to tell you to clean your room. And so he's using ag- exaggeration to make a point. And God is making a point here to Abraham and to us that the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham are going to be so numerous that any attempt to count them is going to be futile. I know the accountants out there don't like this right now because they like exact numbers, but it's it's too big to count mm-hmm. all through the centuries, everything. So is he just talking about Israel here? I don't think so, because in Matthew chapter one, verse one, along with Galatians three, Jesus is identified as the Messiah, the Christ, the son of Abraham or the seed of Abraham. So this gets to the last part of that question to say this includes all those who are followers of God, and and Jesus now has made this possible for untold millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. We can talk about those numbers. You ever thought about how many people that is? If you talk about a million people and then maybe get into a billion followers of mm-hmm. Christ throughout history? No, that's just, that is uh, inconceivable for us. We can say it, but we can't grasp what that means. So it's like sand on the seashore. Yeah, You can't count it. It's like stars in the heaven. It's like dust on the earth that uh, there's more than you can count. And I teased you a little bit, too, to say, and when David did try to count his people, he got in trouble in Second Samuel, that God told him not to take a census of mm-hmm. his people. So 
this, uh, it's a wonderful hyperbole to say, Abraham, your descendants will be so many that you won't be able to count them, just like the stars, the dust, the sand. Mm-hmm. Mark, let's look at Romans chapter 7 in verses 14 to 25. In this passage, there is sometimes confusion among uh, Bible students because of this strong language that Paul uses to describe himself. Yeah. This, um, um, you know, unspiritual, a slave to sin, a prisoner of the law of sin. Um, how does Paul describe himself? How can he if he's truly saved? Yeah. Uh, is this uh, the, the, mainly the debate here? is whether Paul is describing the old life before we put our faith in the gospel okay. and are born again, or mm-hmm. if he is describing the struggle and the battle to live in a way that pleases God once you have put your faith in the gospel. And again in here, it appears as though he's using some figures of speech and literary devices here to make his point. And so, I mean, let's just read some of it here. In Romans 7... Let's see here, starting with uh, verse 14. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if it, if uh, I... But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So he continues to talk about this. Verse 20, if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So... He gets to the end of this in verse 24 and says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? And he answers it, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So you can make an argument, and that's why this hasn't been settled, Bill, as whether this is pre-gospel mm-hmm. or the process of growing as a Christian that includes one battle after the other. And uh, I can give you my opinion on it, but I, re- I respect the other side of this, and they've got credible evidence for it as well. So I'm wondering if there isn't a, a flavor of both of those sides to this, to illustrate this bondage to sin and being enslaved to sin. He gets into this in the previous chapter where he talks about that we are uh, in bondage to sin, held, held captive by it, but now in Christ, we have been freed from that bondage where we can actually resist temptation and sin now that we belong to Christ. And so he comes back to some of that here in chapter 7, and especially the way he ends this. He doesn't talk in the past tense at all about that this is what used to be the case here. Uh, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of of this death? Does that sound like the point when he puts his faith in the gospel? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, he put his faith in the gospel. He's born again. He's now a follower of Christ. But then the last statement is hard to get in there. So then, on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, not did serve the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. He seems to be describing that as a uh, a continual issue in his life. And then I wish they would have put chapter 8, verse 1 in there, because that really 
helps too. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I think the reason a lot of Christians, me included, resonate with the idea that this is describing the ongoing Christian life is it sure describes me Mm -hmm. that at times I am just battling temptation and sin and I lose those battles and I give into it. Uh, There are great Christians throughout history that have chronicled this. One of the most fantastic I have ever read is a fellow that lived, I think he was back in the 1600s on the West Coast of North America. His name is David Brainerd. And uh, his diary, the life and diary of David Brainerd is some kind of a read. This guy sounded like he was depressed all the time because of his sin. Woe is me. How can I go against the Savior that I love and all this kind of thing? Uh, He just struggled with this knowledge and realization of how, how far away he was from pleasing God with his life, with so much of what he did. Uh, Jonathan Edwards himself compiled this journal and uh, made it uh, available to publish. So uh, people like that, I'm in that ballpark too, especially when it comes to those handful of sins. Usually it's just a couple, three, maybe four, that just seem to get you. And if there's a scorecard on resisting the temptation, you got a few wins over here and you don't want to count how many losses there are over there where you gave in. And I think all of us have these kinds of struggles that's usually very limited, not a lot of issues, but man, they really are hard. And we just think, oh, Lord, why do I struggle with this so much? I'm wondering if that's Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talked Mm -hmm. about in 2 Corinthians 12 that uh, he just uh, pled with the Lord to take it away three times. And God said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul learned that even in his weakness, uh, God is strong, and he glorified God for that. So uh, we're getting into a real dark cave, though, getting into these kind of issues. You bring up this idea of wrestling with sin ongoing like this as a Christian. If I tried to teach that to my students, it would be like a mass exodus out of the room. Oh, the professor, I just remembered I got to go to Walmart. I'll <laughs> see you next time. You know, that the, you, you would clear a room in no time mm-hmm. if you start, you know, let's have some specifics. Who wants to talk to us first about yeah, what right. you struggle with? And <laughs> I don't think so. We're yeah. not talking about that. You don't even want to bring it to God some of the time because you feel this sense of guilt and recrimination. So well, that's a lot of honesty. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. And when we uh, come back after the break, we're going to have time for your question. So send it over. Text it. Why not? Take a chance. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome back. I've got Dr. Mark Muska in studio, so let me know what questions he can answer for you. 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. Mark, ooh, sorry, don't hurt yourself. First oh. Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. 
and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Is that a reference to being a carnal Christian, and what is a carnal Christian? Yeah, that's a, this is a passage used to support this idea that there can be uh, such a thing as a carnal Christian. The word carnal means flesh. And so someone who has uh, made a profession of faith in the gospel, they claim to be followers of Christ, but they're, they're struggling. They're living in ways that are displeasing to the Lord. I mean, if you keep going there in verse 3, he says, uh, for you are still fleshly or carnal, for since there is jealousy, strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And then he talks about the factions in Corinth about uh, one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos. And uh, uh, Paul rebukes them for that. So uh, this is an idea that's been around for a while. It gets debated quite a bit. Is it possible for you to be a follower of Christ, regenerated, born again, and not, uh, there's so many euphemisms built, not living for Christ, not walking the walk, uh, engaged in openly rebellious behavior. This isn't just someone who struggles, but they really have walked away in one case or another. Sometimes this is called backsliding in the church. Is it possible? Uh, Is that person still a Christian? Uh, Were they ever a Christian? There's all kinds of hypotheticals there. And I like uh, what one commenter said to say that, you know, I'm not Jesus. Uh, He does the job perfectly well about determining who is where and what with him. And so what we have to do, though, if we care for people like this that are struggling and may be uh, defeated in a lot of these struggles against sin and in following Christ, if we care about them at all, of course, we're going to try to intervene in one way or another by showing our concern for them, by talking with them, asking questions, you know, all this kind of thing to find out where they're at and what's going on. Because all we can do as human beings and as brothers and sisters in Christ is listen to what they say and watch what they do. You know, we mm-hmm. can't see in the heart. That's God's business. But oftentimes people's words and actions betray the things of the heart. I like to just ask them where their heart is instead of presuming that I know what they're thinking or feeling or why they're doing what they're doing. I don't know about you. I find that tremendously off-putting when people say, well, you you just you did that because uh, you didn't love your mother or something. It's like, who do you think you are? You know, I don't even understand a lot of that stuff, why I do things. Who do you think you are that you can tell me right. why I do things I do? So we got to be careful about that. But that's where we ask questions. And I think it's perfectly possible, Bill, there are so many testimonials of people who have had a significant time of wandering away from Christ after being uh, committed to him significantly. And uh, they have just really struggled with some sin that gets grip of their hearts, like we talked about earlier, that they are struggling with, with uh, any kind of sin you can talk about there. Or if it's uh, just a a rebelliousness and uh, anger at God where they throw it all in and say, no, I just don't want to be a Christian anymore. uh, Is that person still saved? Uh, Were they ever saved in the first place? Uh, This is where I get really practical to Mm -hmm. say, you know what? I'm not going to be able to figure that out any day of the week and twice on Sundays. That's for God to know. But what I do know is if they're talking like that now, 
I have to reach out to them and persuade and draw them and lead them as lovingly as I can back to Christ and the gospel. Mm-hmm. Were they ever a Christian in the first place or not? I don't know. Yeah. But they're in a real dangerous position right now in this state of struggling against sin and losing or of just chucking it in with Christianity. Uh, they need to be reached, and we need to do what we can do and say to draw them back to Christ, whether they're ever Christian or not in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I kind of wandered around there, but it's, it's... I liked it, though. This is difficult because we we presume so much of the time, oh, I know what you're thinking and all this, and we really don't. Half the time, Bill, I don't even know what I'm thinking and feeling. You know, it's I'm trying to understand that. And so how can I presume to yeah, know that think with I other people? So, what do you think I feel sitting across well, the studio from you? You, you got you to gotta tell us how you feel. That's <laughs> the whole point. Yeah. Ask people what's going on. Yeah. So, Mark, what does Paul mean in Romans twelve eighteen, where he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone? Yeah. Sounds like there's a little fudge factor there. Well... Peace is only possible when both parties agree to it. Okay. And yeah, you can't force someone to be at peace with you, no. can you? So as far as it's concerned with you, gotcha. make so peace with people. Clean up your but side of the street. They still may think you're a bum and uh, hold resentment and anger against you. And uh, so we take the steps to try to address that. But sometimes uh, people just aren't ready. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't mind having a short discussion on what your understanding is of what Seventh-day Adventists believe. Yeah, and that I'm, I kind of begged off when you brought that up before the show because I don't know enough about it to speak with confidence. Okay, all right. I've run into several people that attend Seventh-day Adventist churches, and uh, again, this gets at my basic optimism, Bill. There are things about Seventh-day Adventists that make me uh, curious and quizzical. And maybe I should have followed up on this years ago and really found out. But Mm -hmm. uh, especially in areas of eschatology, there's things that don't ring true for me, but I'd have to look at it further to to really um, discuss it. And then, uh, but uh, I think uh, the question is, are are they part of the family? Are they part of Christ? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we have people all the time that are disagreeing about this. Uh, Some say yes because they will confess or admit that the death of Jesus is a sufficient payment for the sin of the world, including mine. And that usually does it for me. Honestly, though, Bill, it's not just Seventh-day Adventists. I hear some Mormons talk like that, too. And I'm wondering what in the world's going on inside of them. But they they seem to get it what the gospel is. Does that mean they're just not listening in their Mormon churches or their Seventh-day Adventist churches and believing something that's right on the money? I I don't know. I can't presume on that. But there's enough fuzziness there where I think I encourage people to to listen really carefully and ask questions and see if you can bring clarity to where they're at and what they believe. So so can I open up a m- massive can of worms? You always do. I don't know why you're asking. Well, because I feel like you can try to talk me out of this if you want. No. Would you talk about women's roles according to God's Word? Sure. Women's roles are to follow Christ with all their hearts, 
and to make Jesus known to as many people as they can. Beautiful. Uh, I think what you want to talk about, and I'm doing a nice little end run on you right now, but uh, (laughs) what gets discussed an awful lot is women's role in two specific contexts, one of them being in the church and especially church leadership, and the other one, a, a, a role of women in the family, particularly as a wife and mother in mm-hmm. that family. What exactly are their roles? So uh, I wish I could settle that for you this afternoon. I've got my own views, Bill, about it. But again, I respect people who disagree with me on these things. There's plenty we can agree on when it comes to women's role in the home and in the church. Mm-hmm. And I like to start there. But uh, there's uh, among Bible-believing Christians, you know, very narrow slice of those who call themselves Christians, but even among Bible-believing Christians, there's two really well-articulated and and defined positions on that. They even have fancy names for themselves. They call themselves egalitarians and complementarians, and we can unpack all that if you want to get into it. I, I don't want people listening, driving their cars, putting it in the ditch, though, because they fall asleep. But, okay. Uh, 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 to put it uh, shortly, is is the uh, what we can agree on among most egalitarians and complementarians, Bible believing Christians, is that women in the body of Christ are completely equal to men as far as the inheritance of eternal life that they receive from God, their status in the kingdom of God, their being welcomed into the church and the body of Christ, uh, there's only a few out on the fringes that would disagree with that. Most of these that disagree on other issues are right there on those realities, both men and women. And you know what? Uh, Sadly, the church hasn't always really made that clear. And women sometimes have been treated as second-class citizens of the kingdom and uh, not really valued and honored for the full status in the kingdom that they have along with any men you can name. So the the least woman who comes to faith in Christ, uh, her status is completely equal to someone like the Apostle Paul. No, no second class. Mm-hmm. So starting there, though, this is where we get into these arguments. In the church, most of the time it zeroes in on the role of women in what sometimes are called the ordained level of leadership in the church. The Bible calls these ordained people several different things, that they're called pastors or elders or overseers or bishops. And so is that a role for women to serve in the church or not? Should women be pastors? Should women be on the elder board? or be bishops in the church. Uh, Complementarians will say uh, that those roles are restricted in the New Testament and they should not serve in those roles. There's oodles of other things that they can serve and be incredibly effective, but that role of oversight over the entire church and the affairs of the church is, uh, according to the complementarian, uh, reserved for men only. And they'll use scripture passages to talk about this. The egalitarians will come at it to say, no, if there's not an equal opportunity to serve in these roles of pastor, elder, overseer, bishop in the church, then you're really shading the idea that women are equal to men in the church. They really aren't. If they aren't equal in every respect, then they're not 
equal at all. And here we go with okay. that. So I'm, uh, we can talk about the home too if you want to, but that uh, that's kind of the the ground that we cover here. Mm-hmm. Okay. This listener wants to know, is there a, a new or creative way to approach God when what you really want is kind of a magic bullet to conquer whatever your sin or unbelief or struggle is? Mm. Now, I do know people who have been uh, involved in addictions, and they prayed that God would remove their addiction or their desire, and it did in fact happen. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know if this is something that might be along that line. I mean, if if you have a struggle with something, I, I've talked to men, I've talked to women who have struggled with something, prayed for God to deliver them from something. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. I bet you've talked, uh, I don't bet, but I, I would predict that you've talked to people that they've prayed for that to be removed and it wasn't. Yes. So it's not like it's some magic pill like you talked about. Yes. Yeah. And so that that makes it more complicated, and we have to talk about it a little bit. Uh, this is the glory of God and Christ and the new covenant kingdom that we live in, the church, that God answers prayers like this when people cry out to him in desperation. But he doesn't always do it. And so we have to be careful going into this. If I would talk to someone who had a meth addiction, for example, Bill, mm-hmm. and they're seeking to be healed of this. They want it out of their lives. They hate it, what it's done to them, and they do virtually anything to see themselves delivered from that addiction. Uh, what do I say to someone like that? Uh, I will say to them, well, you know, uh, first things first, there is a terrible breach between you and God because of the human condition that we all have this terrible sin and corruption that takes us away from God. And uh, what I recommend is you take care of that first and and uh, be reconciled to God, and I can show you how that works. And then God may choose to heal you of that addiction, but you can't make that some condition of your turning to God that it's glorious when he does, but, you know, sometimes he doesn't. And those who still have those addictions but love God and belong to Jesus, they still live their lives with that addiction. So I, I, I heard it said one of the uh, this ways sometimes uh, with spiritual gifts, but it applies to this too with answered prayer, that when we call out to God, are we seeking the gift from him or are we seeking the gift giver? Mm-hmm that we call out to the gift giver, that he comes and makes himself real to us. And then if it pleases him, he brings the gifts with him, but we don't seek the gift. We seek the gift giver. It helps to clarify things a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a little break. Time for one more question. We still have several in the queue for Dr. Mark Muska. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. If you've got a burning question, send it over. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest in studio. Lots of good questions coming in. Uh, here's one, Mark. Let's see. I, I wish someone could explain Palestine to me. Mm-hmm. I heard that's where Jesus walked. Yeah, it is. Uh, that area of the world has had many names. Okay. Uh, Canaan, Palestine, Israel, it's okay. called now. Uh, this gets a little political, too, with the tensions over there in the Mideast mm-hmm. of just exactly uh, whose land that is. And so it can get uh, it can get into the argument there. But uh, it is referring to the the same area there okay. on the, what is that, on the east shore of the Mediterranean Sea mm-hmm. there. So, okay. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between the soul and the spirit? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the Bible uses both of these terms freely to talk about what we like to call the immaterial part of us as humans. The material part we call the body or the flesh. And the immaterial part is, it has a lot of names, actually. There's a lot of terms that describe it. Uh, soul, spirit, conscience, uh, 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 thinking or thought, uh, feelings, all these things uh, are not physical. They're connected. We're integrated beings as human beings. So this immaterial part of us and the material part, they influence one another in the way that we live. But uh these two words are the most common that are used for this immaterial part of us. And uh, the soul has the idea connected with it, Bill, that this is the animating part of a living being. So that uh, something like asparagus, I'm sorry, uh, VeggieTales people, but (laughs) uh, does not have a soul. Uh, It is not animated. It does not move. It does not think. It does not have life to it in that sense. It's living, but it's not animated life, where uh, animals and humans have this animating soul within them. And then when people try to distinguish that by saying we also have a spirit, this gets back to our first question of the day with being born again by the Holy Spirit. So now we are alive spiritually to commune with God spiritually because he is a spirit being as well. And this enables us before that we're spiritually dead. We cannot connect with him the way we can once we put our faith in the gospel. And so uh, some uh, there's some evidence to distinguish that from the soul. It's part of the immaterial part of us, but it's not the animating part. It's the part that connects with God, the spiritual life. We are spiritual beings as human beings. The issue with this, though, is if you look at the way I do a word study in the New Testament, the way the word soul and spirit is used, it looks like it's pretty interchangeable that there isn't this big distinction made between soul and spirit in the New Testament writings. And so uh, I would say it's fair to say today that uh, a majority of New Testament scholars would say there there isn't much of a distinction made between soul and spirit in the New Testament. So uh, there's still some who hang on to this, though, that there's a distinction there. But uh, it's... um, I don't know. It's it's uh, vague enough where we have to uh, treat it with respect. Nice explanation. So I was looking at the 28th chapter of Matthew, Mark, and... Matthew or Mark? Um, I was Matthew, uh, comma, Mark. Uh, 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 <laughs> it's kind of been I'm, humorless today here. Well, you know, I mean, you know yeah, it's been kind of a rough day. So yeah. anyway, we're looking at the first couple of verses. After the Sabbath at dawn... On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Yep. There was a violent earthquake, 
for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Would that have been something to see? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But was Jesus already out of the tomb at that point, or don't we know? Looks like it. Or he got out of the tomb invisible while they're sitting there, you know, if it just happens now. But he's standing off to the side, right? Because he's going to have an encounter with Mary in just a minute. Yeah. So... Uh, that uh, your guess is as good as mine. Okay. You know, this is a limited description of what happened there. And uh, so there's all kinds of options for what happened. I like the thing about the guards shook for fear and became like dead men. Uh, they, <laughs> they were terrified yeah. of of this, uh, this occurrence. Would you here. be? You bet. You've been in an earthquake before? Nope. Yeah, the earthquake wouldn't have done it. The angel would have done oh, it. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. totally. Every time angels show up, people are scared out of their wits. So. Mm-hmm. Another listener jumped in, Mark, with this question based on what we were chatting about just minutes before on the role of women. And the question was um, about, uh, where'd it go now? About Ephesians 5. Yeah. 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands Mm -hmm. as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as mm-hmm. Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Mm-hmm. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Yep. That's what it says. And then in verse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and then in verse uh, 25, he turns to the hubbies and says, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, These verses probably are the epicenter for the discussion about the role of men and women in the home and this idea of headship or leadership in the home and in the marriage. Uh, Reading at face value, it sounds like uh, Paul is urging these women to submit to their own husbands as they submit to Christ and the church submits to Christ, Mm -hmm. and husbands are urged to love their wives, not submit to their wives, but love their wives. But then if you go over one verse back in verse 21, uh, Paul is also, though, saying for the church at large, one of the traits of the church is, is he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, or submit to one another in the fear of Christ. So that appears to be the rule of thumb in the church, that Brothers and sisters in the church, we subject ourselves to one another. And then in the family, he gives this for husbands and wives. So you can just imagine the discussion going round and round with this as far as which verses to prioritize. Is this just for the first century or is this uh, transcendent teaching for the church all through its history? We can unpack that. Uh, there, These two uh, views of the egalitarians and complementarians are going to, um, they are going to, have a very lively debate over that. Just this idea of headship itself, what does this mean? Does it mean a sense of authority when the husband is described as the head of the marriage? Or is it a headship in sense of the the sense of the husband being the source of life for the marriage, that as head, he is the source? Is he the authority or the source? And so word studies get done all over the place to try to understand this. But uh, these two groups have yet to be able to reconcile these issues. Mm-hmm. As usual, I kept you pretty busy today. Yeah. It went very quickly. It's all over. Right. Time is up. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, thank you once again. It's always I, fun. It's always fun. I always love seeing you, and I always look forward to when you come in. Yeah. And I know the listeners love it. So it's well, win-win. Good. 
Yeah. I hope so. People keep reading their Bibles, Amen. asking those questions. That's yeah. the Amen. pathway to growing. Hey, I love it. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, thank you so much. That wraps up our show for the day. I want to thank all my guests, uh, Rob Bluey and Mo Aiken and Dr. Mark Muska. If you missed any of the program today, you might want to head over to MyFaithRadio.com and check out the afternoons page with me. Uh, my name is Bill, and you will find everything there in podcast form. You can send it to friends or listen to it again or catch what you missed. Have a great night, everyone, and pray for our city of Minneapolis as we go through uh, whatever is happening tonight. We don't know. God knows, and I pray that we will be safe, and I pray for your safety tonight and your comfort and your rest, and let God... Um, Meet you where you're at tonight. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.